welcome to episode 12 of the Philosopher Science Podcast, the podcast about free, libre, and open source software for science. Today, David and I are interviewing Kenneth Hostem. We got in contact with him after seeing his most recent talk at Fostem 2018 titled How to Make Package Managers Cry. In this episode, we will discuss about big and small things you should consider when you are distributing your scientific software. With these tricks, you will Sure, put a smile into the face of package managers who will have to deal with your project. Hi, Kenneth. Could you introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, Patrick. Hi, David. Uh, thank you very much for inviting me for the, the interview. So my name is Kenneth Hoste, as you mentioned. I'm, I was born, grown up. I'm living and working in Belgium. I have a master's and a PhD in computer science from Ghent University, also in Belgium. Uh, since 2010, I'm working as an HPC system administrator at Ghent University, and I'm mainly responsible there for the user support and the software installation. I'm also the lead developer and release manager of EasyBuild, which is a tool for in installing scientific software. And in my free time, I'm um, a family man, so I have I spend time with my wife and two kids. And I'm a big fan of open source software and, and loud music. How would you describe your job at the Ghent University? So as I mentioned, it's mostly user support, so helping the, the scientists use our high-performance high computing infrastructure. We also do a bit of training, so basic introduction to Linux, which is uh, what they need to use the systems and the basic usage of the HPC infrastructure. And I also spend a lot of time on the, the help desk side, so answering questions by scientists on how to use the the infrastructure resolving any problems they may run into, any errors they see or something they want to try and is not working out as expected. And these questions range from, range from very basic to account problems or forgetting their password to very technical, difficult to answer or to resolve questions and problems. So that makes it very interesting. And as a part of that, about half of my time uh, working on the help desk, I spent installing scientific software. Okay, so you really have a good first-hand experience about the needs of scientists working in HPC. Yes, I think so, yeah. Okay, in which way do you think that administering a HPC high-performance computing system is different than regular workstations or server in the, in the enterprise? Um, th there's a couple of aspects that make it quite different in, in my view. Um, so first of all, we're kind of on the top of the food chain with respect to hardware and, and technology. So we get all the very brand new, very shiny stuff, which is very nice to, to work with, but also um, very often a problem because you, you're seeing the problems for the first time as well. So we get very recent hardware, very specialized hardware, like these uh, fast interconnection networks between different servers to make it one big system, basically. Typically a large amount of servers as well. So in here in Ghent, at some point, we had over a thousand servers that we had to take care of. And we were actually a very small HPC site. So a thousand is, is not even that, that much yet. And because of that, automation is very important for us. We basically need to make sure we try and automate everything. Software installation, configuration of the systems, monitoring of the system. So everything has to be as automatic as possible to make it feasible. I already mentioned specialized hardware, so network, but also uh, shared storage solutions, GPUs, accelerators. So all this, this fancy new stuff typically pops up first in the supercomputing community. And then on the other side, you also have the software so to, to get the storage well supported, you need specialized software like GPFS or Luster. You typically have a, a resource manager on the clusters where people submit jobs to and then 
those jobs get started at some particular system and the results come back. MPI software, so the message passing interface, which allows you to implement software that talks to different systems across the network and so on. And to tie these things together, there's, there's a large disconnection, at least in my experience, between the complexity of the hardware that is being used in HPC systems and the knowledge of the scientists who need to use the, the these hardware. Because most of the scientists are not computer scientists. They, they are biologists or chemists that have to do simulations. And for them, it can be very difficult to, to use the systems or at least use it in an efficient way. Um, so that's that's where we come in. We try to make it as easy as possible for them without making too much compromises in terms of efficiency and performance. So we're always trying to make that, that balance. Okay. When speaking about fancy tools you have to deal with, the software development world recently seems to be converging towards DevOps or chest run tools and containers. Do you think that in the next few years we will see major changes in the ways in which we deploy our software or run our simulation in HPC environments? And I actually think we're, we're seeing it already. So certainly with, with containers in the last two, maybe three years, containers have gotten a lot of attention in the HPC community as well, mostly thanks to one particular project, Singularity, uh, which is, is like a, a Docker for HPC, let's say. So Docker has a, a number of problems in, in, in a supercomputing setting. Uh, so it's not a good fit there. And that's where Singularity kind of fills that gap. And it, this is getting a lot of attention because many people think this is the right uh, way to deploy software. One of the key phrases they have is mobility of compute. So they, they want to enable scientists to prepare their work, prepare their software environment on their laptop, and then just bring it to the HPC systems. And this ties back to the ease of use. So that, that makes it very easy for people, for scientists to use these HPC systems. But on the other side, and this is something that's maybe not discussed enough, in, at least in my view, sometimes they, they trade off this mobility of compute for performance, which is not very good in, in my view. So sometimes with these containers, they are uh, constructed in such a way that they are very generic, that they can run anywhere, which also means you're not really using the underlying hardware potentially. And that's, that's a bit of a concern with, with containers in HPC. And this is just something that, People need to be at least aware of that this may be an issue and that they have to keep an eye on this. So they, they shouldn't just blindly use container images that are out there, but be very critical about using them and checking whether the performance is actually the best or close to the best that they can get. Okay, so you really see an overhead due to the use of those containers, those generic containers? It, it's not really an, an overhead, but it's the, the way the containers were constructed are deliberately done in a very generic way so they can run on hardware that's 10 years old or very recent hardware okay yeah like processor like processors uh instruction that they're not using the ones optimized for your architecture exactly so stuff like avx2 is is fairly recent with the newest systems avx512 so the very broad vector instructions if you're not using those you're not really using the underlying hardware And typically in container images, they don't do this because this is this kind of instruction is not supported everywhere. So it's it's a balance between mobility and, and performance. And that, especially in the HPC community, that's a bit sensitive because you're, you're trying to use the hardware you have in a very good way. And with containers, you're actually going the other way. And that's, that's not always a good idea. Yeah, you're trying to juice out as much performance as possible from your your limited resources. 
Yeah, exactly. So one example that, that popped up for us recently, we had a, a request to install TensorFlow. We don't have any GPUs in Ghent, so we're CPU-only clusters. And when I was when I was checking the TensorFlow installation, the performance I was getting was, was kind of disappointing, but I did a very simple installation, just a pip install TensorFlow, which, which meant it was not optimized at all for our hardware. And then when I did the effort of compiling it from source, which was, which was not that easy, um, I actually got a 7x speed up just by recompiling TensorFlow. So the installation became seven times faster, which is, of course, a, a very big deal on, uh, on any cluster. Okay. On your standard install on the in the cluster at Ghent University, what kind of software stack do you provide to your users? The the software we have installed centrally is very broad because we uh, try to help basically all the scientists across all scientific domains in the university, which means we have to uh, support a lot of different software. And I took a look this morning and we, we have almost a thousand different software packages installed. So that includes stuff like compilers and MPI libraries and dependencies for the actual scientific software. Uh, but everything, everything together, it's close to a thousand different software packages. So, the, so that's quite a lot. In, in my experience, a lot of the time we spend in installing scientific software is mostly with bioinformatics software, uh, because there's just lots of small tools out there. There's lots of new tools being developed and then papers being written, presentations being done, and then people want to try out these new tools because they, they think it may be useful for their research as well. So we get a lot of requests for these bioinformatics tools, and we end up spending a lot of time uh, installing them in a, in a somewhat efficient way. And we also have a lot of very complex software stacks, so large simulation software like com computational fluid dynamics, uh, weather modeling. So these things tend to be very complex by themselves and then have lots of dependencies underneath that you have to tackle first. And basically, all everything together would be impossible without a tool like like EasyBuild that really helps us uh, to manage all of that with a limited amount of manpower. Okay, from your personal experience, how much of the HPC is done with what we call free software? That's a difficult question to answer. I think so. There's there's two aspects to to software in the HPC and in, in an HPC system. So first of all, the underlying software. Let's say everything at the OS level. So today, and that, that's quite recent, 100% of the top 500 of supercomputers runs Linux. So there's, there's really no other operating system that's being used on supercomputers. So that's very good. And on top of the operating system, there's lots of open source software being used for configuration management, for monitoring, shared file systems, uh, everything like that. Also, languages, scripting languages like Python are very popular in the HPC community. There are a couple of commercial software packages that are quite popular as well and for good reason so one is, one is gpfs which is a shared file system which is, has been there for 30 40 years and it is quite popular in the hpc community as well there is an alternative that's fully open source which is luster and yeah people just have their preference for, for one of both and then another one is the intel compilers um, because they are intel is very familiar with the processors that are, that are typically used at least Uh, in the recent years in HPC systems. And their compilers just give you a, a large performance benefit when compiling the software with their specific compilers, uh, especially for Fortran software, which is still a very popular programming language in, in scientific software. And then on the other side, for uh, the actual scientific software, there's two ways of viewing, uh, of looking at it. So in terms of compute time being spent, 
with software. I would say it, it's close to 50-50 open source software and commercial software, or at least non-open source software, so where people have to sign some kind of license um, to get access to the software. But if you look at the number of software packages used, so not tied to compute time being spent with them, it's probably like 90% open source. So that's a, yeah, a big difference in depending on how you look at it. And in general, at least in my experience, there's a big shift towards open source software in science, which I consider a very good thing. So languages like Python and R have a big ecosystem of libraries and packages around them that are very popular in scientific fields. Is there also some advertisement from your department to show people that there are alternatives for open source software or Is there any effort or you just say, yeah, you can use the closed source software? It, it's mostly, we leave it mostly up to the users because they typically tend to use whatever they are familiar with. But if we do get a question that they are stuck with uh, some closed source software like MATLAB, for example, we do mention alternatives like Octave and, and Python and languages like this, but we don't really push them uh, towards it. So we leave it up to them whether they want to use it or not, because typically it, there's a big investment as well to move away from some tool you're very familiar with. And yeah, the, the benefit is not always clear, uh, especially because people have a limited amount of time. So PhDs have like four or five years to get their work done. If they have to spend one of those years just learning a new language, there may not be enough benefit for them. Yeah, and even learning it in one year makes... You're not as proficient as a professional programmer in that language after a single year, and you may not be aware of all little optimization you can perform. So you probably your team probably does provide some help with the design of the software to improve the running speed on the clusters. We we try to. We have a limited amount of time and manpower to do that, but whenever we get the chance, we do. Yeah. And even with languages like MATLAB and stuff, if we see a big bottleneck, we will point it out to them and, and help them to resolve it. Yeah. Okay. Before you talk about your presentation at FOSDEM, could you explain what FOSDEM is? FOSDEM is an, a big open source meeting that takes place every year in Brussels in Belgium. It's a very international meeting. It's, it's quite big, so it has over 8,000 people there in, in a weekend. It's not a conference in the traditional sense, so there are no papers. You actually don't have to register for the, for the meeting at all. You just show up there and you start walking around. You don't pay any money. And there's lots of beer everywhere. So that makes it kind of a, a different type of, of meeting. And people take the effort every year to fly into Belgium, into Brussels, to attend the meeting every year, which, which kind of amazes me. So there's people flying in from the US and Canada, even Australia and, and places like that to Brussels. Um, to this open source meeting. It's, it's a very broad open source meeting, so it's not tied to a particular community. There's people there from Linux distributions, uh, desktop software like GNOME and KDE, embedded in Internet of Things, web development, and then also scientific software. So all of that is, uh, is there. So it's a very broad community. And it's basically a place where lots of talks and demos are being given all over the weekend. So there's, I don't know, there's 15 or 20 parallel tracks or something. So it's quite big. Um, so if you ever get the chance to attend it, I highly recommend it. It's in Brussels every year. It's usually the first week of, of February. Okay. So you were the co-organizer of the HPC Dev Room at FOSDEM for several years. What is the HPA Dev Room and what happens there? So the HPC Dev Room is just, well, the, the Dev Room term is maybe not that well known, but it's basically a, a big room 
where the organizers can yeah can organize whatever they want to and typically it's it's back to back presentations that are being given by people the format is usually like f- fairly short talks 20 to 25 minutes and sometimes a couple of lightning talks as well so that have a faster turnaround it, it's just a it's an opportunity for developers of of open source software so it has to be open source software and specifically for the HPC dev room, it's scientific software or tools related to HPC or data science or big data. So things like that. The audience is very, let's say, non-traditional as well. So it's mostly people who develop software themselves, but they come from a very broad range. Uh, so sometimes people that do web development are in your room. Sometimes people that uh, help out with Linux distributions are there. Um, and this kind of audience makes it very interesting because you, you get strange questions. You get people that look at your, your presentation in a very different way. And sometimes that can be very, that can be very eye-opening. Uh, so you, you get a very different view on things all of a sudden. It's just a very nice place to meet interesting people who, who you would probably never run into somewhere else. So I, I've, been, I've been organizing the HPC Dev Room since 2014 with a, a small pause in between. And we've actually teamed up with people from the Apache community to make the scope of the dev room a little bit bigger and hopefully to keep it going every year. In those four years where you were in charge of the dev room and based on the talks you've seen over there, the, the side conversation you, you heard, uh, have you noticed any specific trends in HPC that you are not expecting before that? Any changes that you see at the, ri- at the horizon? I guess it's two main things. So that, again, the, the rise of containers in the HPC community that sort of came out of the blue and, and again, through the Singularity Project that really started booming in the HPC community. And also the interest that machine learning, deep learning, AI, all of these things have been getting certainly in, in, in the last year has, has been really been exploding. So that kind of surprised me, especially because I was already using machine learning techniques in my PhD, which is now almost 10 years ago. And back then, not that many people were looking at it. And now it's suddenly exploding. So that was an interesting development. Everything old is new again? Yeah, sort of. So somehow there was a spark somewhere. Maybe it was the, the GPUs that got more and more interest and are, are very good for machine learning. I'm not sure. Uh, or the the, the, the the hardware that got better and now it's more affordable to do it? Yeah, maybe. Well, when I was doing the machine learning or using the machine learning techniques in my research, it was already very, very interesting because I was using the, the supercomputer back then as a user, and that was very valuable for, for doing my research. So yeah, m- maybe the increased performance has made it more feasible. It's possible. I remember some friends in 2008, I think, were trying to do some uh, image analysis through uh, neural networks. It didn't work as well, but then we were using just normal, regular computers. So. Yeah, a lot changed since then. Since then, the whole deep learning hype that that's happening is mostly because of yeah, it's probably more feasible now than it was before. Because to, to do deep learning to get very good results, you really need big amounts of data. And I guess before that wasn't just not feasible to do it. The data wasn't there, or if it was there, it was too difficult or too time-consuming to process it. So, yeah. Okay. Regarding to your recent talk, could you summarize some of the key points of your presentation for our listeners who have not seen it yet? Well, the, the people who haven't seen it yet should, should definitely take a look, <laughs> partially because of the format of, of the talk. So I gave it in a very sarcastic tone. 
which was a bit of an experiment for me, but it, it worked out quite well. So some of the key points, I guess, are that one of the first times that people will get in touch with your software is when they have to install it. So that's like the first impression they get. When that ter- doesn't turn out really well, they will sort of assume that if the installation is very bad, then the software will be very bad as well. So I, I think it's important to get that right. Specifically for scientific software, things can be a bit hairy. And I guess the underlying reason for that is that the, the developers of the scientific software are, are usually not software engineers. So they, they are scientists and they care mostly about the science and the software is kind of a, a necessary evil for them in, in a lot of cases. So they don't really care too much about making it very clean in terms of software engineering practices or very easy to install. And that has a lot of impact. Uh, so typically or very often they don't follow standard practices in terms of tools, in terms of versioning of software, testing of software. Sometimes they have lots of dependencies and they do weird things like including the dependencies in their software rather than just telling people to install the dependency first and then let their software leverage it. Uh, lots of hard coding. And, and yeah, what's very typical, unfortunately, in open source software is, is poor documentation. So people have to figure things out as they go. I guess that's the key point of my presentation. So that maybe we should, or people should at least be more aware that Scientists are not always software engineers, and that, that has an impact on the software they produce. Where did you get the inspiration to perform this talk? It, it was mostly out of pure frustration when I was working to install TensorFlow for the users of our infrastructure. If you're just doing it very quickly, just a pip install TensorFlow, it's quite easy. But when you dive in and see how it performs, you start realizing that the, this is really not the, the installation you want. And then when you start looking at how to compile it from source, it's almost as if they made it very, very difficult on purpose. So it's like they were looking for ways to, to make it difficult. And I think it, so we had, thanks to EasyBuild, we have a lot of experience in installing software. And I have to say that TensorFlow is probably in, in the top 10 or, or maybe, maybe even top five of the worst packages to deal with, to install, to install from source. So that was basically the biggest inspiration for the talk. Okay, it's the same level than Electron apps to build from source? I don't have much experience with those yet, maybe unfortunately, but things like computational fluid dynamics, uh, weather modeling, or other examples of very complex and very difficult to install packages. And then TensorFlow is as well, but just for the wrong reasons. Uh, I, I don't know what, why Google made the decisions that they, are, they made there. And they're actually working very hard now to, to make it easier to install that they have started a special interest group um, to make the packaging of TensorFlow easier, and they're actually making changes to, to do a better job there. Yeah. In your presentation, you talked about many pitfalls that should be avoided if you want your software to be used by other scientists. Now, what would you suggest as solutions to scientists and developers on how they should improve the installation process for their scientific software and help HPC admins like you? Yeah, there's, there's a whole bunch of things, of course, that people can do to to help us. So I guess the main point is they should try to use common tools for configuration and, and building of the software. So things like Make. I'm not a big fan of CMake, but I guess CMake is very common and, and well-known by now. Just standard software engineering practices. That, so try to do some research first before you start implementing your software or packaging your software. And sometimes that, that's very simple things. Like if you're writing... A Python module or a Python package, 
publish it in the standard place on, on the PyPy package index. Uh, same for R packages, get it up to CRAN, so it, it follows the standard installation procedure. Sometimes it's very simple things like this. One thing I personally like a lot if it's there is tests. So if you do a software installation and you have a standard way of testing it and checking whether it's performing or at least running as it should be, so it's spitting out results that make sense. That's very useful as well because for, for people like us who install software for other people, we are typically not the main scientists, so we barely know what the software does, let alone being able to check whether it spits out meaningful uh, results. So having some standard way of doing that is very useful. Software versioning is quite important as well. So try to version your software whichever way you want to. Don't re-release software under the same version. So if you find found a small bug, it's very tempting to push it out under the same version, but don't do that because somebody will have picked up your software, hopefully. And then they will get very confused when things are different, even though the version is the same. Unfortunately, we see, we see that a lot, so, and it's very frustrating. And then I guess the other thing is dependencies. So if you have some dependencies, try to document them. Don't include them in your software, but just document them and check whether they are there. Check whether it's the right version, what, what you expect it to be. Yeah, so people are trying to cut corners there and they think they make it easier for people to install their software if they include the dependencies. It's actually the other way around because usually the dependencies are already there for other packages and then you have duplicate installations and things get yeah, things get very confusing, basically. Do you often have documentation that comes with the scientific software or do you have to hunt for information? It, it depends. Depends. It's it's very very different depending on the software package. So some people do a very good job at documenting things, documenting the installation procedure, having some kind of testing procedure, giving examples on how to use the software, and then yeah, that makes it easy for us to do some sanity checking before we give it back to the scientists. And in other cases, you do get documentation, but it's very outdated, and it was for three versions ago, and now things are very different. So it's actually worse than having no documentation at all, because you spend a, spend a lot of time figuring out why things don't work, because you don't realize it's, it's outdated. And sometimes there's no documentation at all, so it, yeah, it varies a lot. Okay. Instead of focusing on like the negative, do you have any uh, specific scientific application that you find that is well-developed, well-documented, that users could use as a template to get inspiration from to, to start their project? Oh, that's a very good question. Let's see. From the top of, top of my head, nothing comes to mind, unfortunately. TensorFlow has some good documentation even for their installation process. So that was, that was quite helpful. But then without that documentation, it would have been basically impossible to get it installed from source. So I guess that's a, that's a necessary evil there. Yeah, I, I can't really recall a very specific example for that, unfortunately. You are the lead developer and release manager of EasyBuild, a software build and installation framework for, in parenthesis, scientific software and high-performance computing systems. Could you explain briefly what EasyBuild is? Um, so EasyBuild is a, is a tool, or yeah, we like to call it the framework that we developed at uh, Ghent University and the HPC team, mainly to install, uh, to automatically install scientific software. Um, and it's very focused on scientific software and HPC systems. So there are other tools out there that install software, but EasyBuild is kind of in a, in a niche. So it's aware of MPI libraries and BLAS and LAPAC libraries, so things that are very specific to HPC. 
Uh, over the years, it has kind of grown into an expert system. So it has, has lots of small tricks and details inside that uh, things that we check, things that we configure for, um, for specific software packages that are, that are quite important uh, in an HPC setting. Yeah, so it, it's implemented in Python, and there's a the core of it is just a bunch of functionality for things like applying a patch file or opening a tarball, running shell commands and things like that. And then next to that, you have uh, Python modules that implement a particular installation procedure. For example, installing TensorFlow or configure, make, make, install. So we have separate modules for those. And then together with that, we have what we call easy config files. So these are just uh, key value definitions that specify what should be installed. So which software package, which version, which dependencies and which versions of the dependencies to use, which compiler toolchain to use, and so on. So and everything together uh, that, that allows us to use EasyBuild to fully automate the software installation, no matter what is being used underneath, whether it is CMake or some fancy custom-made tool, uh, we don't really care anymore because we get a common interface for installing software. From what you describe, this really seems a lot like a package manager under Linux. How would you? How do you think EasyBuilds differentiate from other package manager, managers such as APT, DNF, Zipper, or even uh, Nix? That's uh, a good question. So one key difference with traditional package managers like like APT or YUM is that we uh, always install software from source, at least when we get the, the option. Um, so if the sources are available, we will install from source. We do that so we can target the underlying hardware, uh, target the specific processors in the system and optimize the software for them, again, for these vector instructions and things like this which is not what traditional package ma managers do. They just build the software in a very generic way. So it runs on, on different hardware architectures. In HPC, you don't want to do that because you suffer too much in terms of performance. Things like Nix. So Nix has a, a binary packaging system as well, but also has good support for building from source if you want to. So in terms of that, it's a bit closer to easy build. The biggest focus or the biggest difference between Nix and easy build is that Um, Nix has a very strong focus on bitwise reproducibility. So they want to go towards if you're installing a particular package um, on your laptop and then somebody else wants to use that same package, they should be able to get the same exact binary down to the bit, which is very difficult and which actually clashes a little bit with the, the goal of HPC to get good performance. Because if you get the same binary bit by bit, that basically means you have to ignore the underlying hardware. So you can't use the specific instructions for that hardware because then you would get a different binary as well. So there's a bit of a, of a clash there, but Nix has been trying to get into the HPC community. They've been, they have a, a couple of people there that are really pushing for it. And it's actually a very interesting software package. So we, we have, and we will in the future as well, uh, try to leverage some of their ideas into EasyBuild. Okay, so you more compare EasyBuild more something more to like uh, Gen 2 Sportage? Yeah, it's it's closer to that, but then with a specific focus on HPC and, and scientific software, which Gen 2 doesn't have. How many software packages are supported by EasyBuild? Uh, today we have over 1,500 different software packages supported. So basically anything we install in Gantt as central software for our users is done through EasyBuild. So there's no exception. And then we have lots of people that have contributed software as well. So that's how we get to uh, well over 
1,500. That number doesn't include things like Python packages, R libraries, Perl modules, and, and things that we typically install together with Perl or Python or R. Um, so if you count those, you're probably looking at a thousand more, more or less. So the, the full list of what we support is uh, in the EasyBuild documentation. Okay, so as far as I understood, I need an EasyBuild config file to install this specific package. Do you share your yeah, config files on a public repo or do I have to write my own config file or can I share it with others if I have provided a file for compiling OpenMPI or the GNU compiler set or something? Yeah, so we, uh, we have a separate repository for these easy config files and every easy build release contains everything that we have centrally. So uh, I would have to look up the number, but I think it's about 8,000 different configuration files. So for different versions of software, different dependencies and so on. And all of that is included with easy build. And with every release we do, we rebuild all of these configurations to make sure nothing is broken. So any of those you can just use straight out of the box and they should work. If they don't work, uh, then that's a bug we have to look into. And on top of that, you can use your own configuration files. You can write your own uh, easy blocks, so Python modules that automate some installation procedure. And you can just plug them into EasyBuild. So they don't have to be part of the installation. They can live anywhere. Um, and you can tell EasyBuild to use them. When you test each of them for each new version, do you test integration between different packages or do you test each, each package separately? When we do the testing of the configurations, it's mostly the, uh, the installation of the packages, not so much the actual usage. But we do run all the tests that are included in the software package. So if it has a, a, a unit test suite that you can run with make test, for example, EasyBuild will run that as well. So that usually means you're also checking the dependencies and things like that. So the, the, the regression test we do for EasyBuild is mostly to make sure that any changes we have made to EasyBuild doesn't break any of the ins installations we support. That's the main goal. Okay. Uh, my question, my, my thought was more like, is there any clash or problem of compatibility between different uh, software that you support? Like, is it impossible to install some software with others? with EasyBuild or does it handle concurrent incompatible softwares? Yeah, so EasyBuild installs every software package in a dedicated installation prefix and a dedicated directory. So everything is kind of isolated from each other. So you can easily install Python 2 and Python 3 and even different versions of those next to each other. And then everything ties together with, with what is called environment modules. So this is a, a system that's very typical on HPC systems. It's a, it's a small file that you can, it's like a script that you can run. So people do module loads and they pick a particular software package with a particular version. And then that makes some changes in the environment to, uh, to prepare for using that package. And these modules, so the, the scientists just pick whichever software they want. They load the, the corresponding modules and then everything works nicely together. So EasyBuild just separates all the installations from each other and then users can mix and match as they want to. I think one major thing in science is reproducible systems. So does EasyBuild support this or is there any feature how I can get exactly the same build with EasyBuild when I use the same config file on the same system? That's a good question. So the, the answer there is we're kind of taking a pragmatic approach to that in the sense that the easy config files we have 
So the, the software version you're installing is, is let's say, hard-coded in there, specified in there. Also, the version of the dependencies are specified in there. So if somebody gives you an easy config file, in theory, it should work for them as well. One thing we do not do, and that's actually needed to, to have full reproducibility, is we don't shield the whatever is available in the operating system. So say you have a particular version of OpenSSL in your, in your operating system installed. When installing other software with EasyBuild, this will be exposed. Um, and depending which version of OpenSSL is, inst- is installed on your system may cause the installation to work or not work. This is, this is where projects like Nix and Geeks differ. So they do shield the underlying operating system from the installation procedure. And this is how they get this bit rise reproducibility, or at least that's part of it. They have to do more tricks than that uh, to get this full reproducibility. But this is not really the, the goal in easy build. We can probably do a, a little bit better uh, with a significant amount of effort, but I think it's well enough right now uh, that usually when people get an easy config file, they can reproduce the same installation. Okay. You talk about easy build from the point of view of a system administrator. Is it possible for users to use um, the easy build on their own computer to install the softwares in the same way as you do in the HPC cluster? Yeah, they, they actually can. Um, so easy build is not really targeted to workstations, let's say. It's very specific to clusters. So people may not have the best experience if they use it on their workstation, but sure, it, it'll work or it should work, at least as long as they're running a Linux environment because it's really specific to Linux. But yeah, they may not get a very good experience because one of the first things we do when installing software with EasyBuild is build your own compiler. So we build our own version of GCC. Uh, we don't want to use the GCC that's in the OS because that's typically very old. So you want to use one of the, the most recent versions of the compiler, or maybe even an entirely different compiler like the Intel compilers. And doing that on a workstation is just going to take a very long time because we're going to build this GCC version from source and then open API on top of that and so on. On a cluster, that's much less of a problem because there you can just spread the installations across different uh, nodes in your cluster and then things go a lot faster. Okay, so EasyBuild is kind of based on the assumption that you have more than one CPU to compile your code at the same time? Yeah, or at least it helps. At least it helps in speeding things up. Uh, but we do have users of uh, the clusters that install software in their own accounts on the cluster using EasyBuild rather than asking us to install it centrally. So typically people do this because they, they use an existing scientific software package and they make some changes to it for their research. And then you have to recompile the thing. And rather than doing that by hand, we, we see people picking up EasyBuild to do it for them. So it, it kind of like empowers users as well. Okay, so let us switch a little bit to the community around the EasyBuild project. Yeah, When did the EasyBuild project start? EasyBuild was started internally in our team back in 2009, basically out of pure necessity, because we couldn't, yeah, we started getting requests for scientific software a lot. Uh, from our users and we couldn't find any tool that was helping us to to deal with that in an efficient way so we were kind of forced or we felt forced to start a tool ourselves it was developed in-house for a while and then in in april 2012 we started considering making it publicly available mainly to get feedback on it from other people in the hpc community and we were sort of expecting people to tell us why are you doing all this custom work? Uh, there's, an, there's another tool out there that you are not using. Why are you just not using that? But that didn't happen. Uh, so it, it seems like we had 
filled a void with that and people started jumping on the project quite quickly and a community a community emerged around it so by now we have a very good community around it about 100 or yeah even over 100 hpc sites around the world are using it we have a very active mailing list with over 250 people on it and over a thousand messages per year and some of the biggest hpc sites in the world and certainly that was a surprise for us are, are uh, are using EasyBuild today. So the Jülich Supercomputing Center in Germany, for example, is using it on some of their very big supercomputers. And also at CSCS, uh, so the home of the fastest supercomputer in Europe, it's Daint, is using EasyBuild as well. So that was a bit of a surprise for us. Okay. When you're speaking of community, are this community more users or do you also get contribution bug fixes outside of your university? Yeah, we, we do quite a lot of, we do get quite a lot of contributions actually. Um, it, it has gotten to a point where it's, it's too much for uh, me alone to manage. Um, and we have started uh, getting very active people in the community involved with, with maintaining the project. So today there's um, next to myself, there's nine other EasyBuild maintainers. And over the years, over 150 different people have contributed to it. So, which is also, yeah, it's very interesting because that gives us a lot of, a lot of win in time as well. So by people contributing bug fixes or software updates to EasyBuild, uh, that ends up saving us a lot of time as well. Okay, for those uh, developers and uh, users, uh, what are the main communication channels that are generally used? Uh, so I mentioned the mailing list already, which is quite active. We have an IRC and Slack channel as well, which are tied together. So people on IRC can talk to people on Slack and the other way around. We have conf calls every other week to discuss the hot topics. So the, the problems that people have been facing or the, the, the things we have to deal with. We have a yearly user meeting, which is usually in Europe, attended by 30, 40 people from the community. And then every now and then we have hackathons as well. So where we try to get easy build contributors together in a room to solve some of the problems that uh, we have been dealing with. Do you have topic specific mailing lists or simply a general one? There's a, a general mailing list. When we need to discuss specific topics, we, we try to either, uh, yeah, we try to do this free via an issue on GitHub um, because it's, it's easier to go back to that later and to have that as a reference. How can one join the community and start helping with the development? What is the recommended way to get involved into the project? There, there are various ways of getting involved, I guess. So uh, I would recommend that people just install EasyBuild, try to use it for installing the software they care, they care about. If they run into any problems, they should try to report them back, either by opening an issue on GitHub or by contacting the mailing list. If they want to get more interactive help or the, if they have any small questions that they want, want to get an answer to, a good way is to connect to IRC or Slack and ask people there. So usually somebody's around there um, that can give a fairly quick answer to their questions. Okay, so we talked a lot about documentation earlier. Do you have a guide for newcomers? Yeah, how to contribute or how to behave or is there any information? Uh, we have a contributing guide in the EasyBuild documentation One of the efforts we did there is we, we added a lot of automation in EasyBuild itself to contribute back. So at some point we were noticing that people were very interested in contributing back, but they were not very familiar with Git or even with GitHub to open pull requests. So we ended up adding support in the EasyBuild command line itself to open pull requests without knowing any 
anything from Git. So you don't need to run any Git commands. EasyBuild will do everything under the covers for you. And we have a, a long documentation page uh, on, on how to do that and how to configure EasyBuild to do that for you. The getting started thing, we could probably do a better job there in the documentation, but we have some very basic introduction level information there, like what are the terminologies we use and how do you typically use EasyBuild? So that is covered in the documentation, yes. Okay, do you have any list of uh, easy bugs or easy features to add for uh, newcomers in the project? Um, we have the list of issues on GitHub, which is rather long, yeah. <laughs> so if people want to dive in there and, and find something easy, hopefully they can find it there, yeah. Okay, uh, which skills would be required to contribute to the project? Uh, what kind of la programming languages are used or... Uh, basically, anything, everything in EasyBuild is written in Python. So knowing a bit of Python is would be helpful. It's not a strict requirement, again, because of the GitHub integration we have in EasyBuild itself. When you're writing easy config files, so the easy config files are in Python syntax, but you don't necessarily have to know that. You can take an existing easy config file and just update the version of a software package, for example, which is just changing a small part, changing a string in the easy config file. And then thanks to the GitHub integration we have, people can contribute it back without knowing any Python or Git. So we, we try to make the, the contribution to, or the bar to contribution as low as possible. But yeah, if you want to get more involved deeper in EasyBuild and changing the easy blocks, the Python modules or the, the core functionality, then knowing a bit of Python is, is quite useful. Okay. To contribute an easy build, a build script, do you do your users need to have a good knowledge of the software they want to install or just a general knowledge of how the software is installed is generally sufficient? That, that's usually sufficient if there's, let's say, a bit of documentation available on how to install that software. Uh, or if you can figure it out by yourself, that's, uh, that's enough. And there's lots of examples in EasyBuild itself. So lots of example easy blocks or easy config files that you can use to see how, how you can convince EasyBuild to do something in particular. And that's also why the easy, why the Slack channel and the, and the mailing list are very useful. People can very easily ask there, I want to install this particular software package with EasyBuild. Can you give me any relevant examples? And then people will quickly point out, look at this because it's very close to what you need. Okay. The last question about community. Under which license is EasyBuild published? It's a GPL v2. Are there any reasons why you decided to go for this license or yeah, you just use it because it's quite common in HPC community? Well, when, when we released EasyBuild publicly for the first time in 2012, we had a, a bit of a discussion internally which license we should go for. We ended up going with GPL v2 because we felt that that gave us the the best Guarantee is a strong word, but uh, the best opportunity to get contributions back. So we, we hoped that would motivate people to contribute back. The GPL license doesn't require people to do that, but I think it helps because with a, a looser license like BSD, for example, people could just repackage or rebrand EasyBuild in another commercial project, and then things would not flow back as easily to the community. So that is something we wanted to to push for a little bit. And we also felt that starting with GPL, If we figured out that it wasn't working, then we could also drop, we could still drop down to BSD while the other way around was a lot more difficult. In the end, I think the GPL decision was quite good. So there, initially there were some requests by third parties to relicense it as BSD, but we felt those were not really well motivated and they were just trying to 
make the license looser so they could get away with re- repackaging it or something. So we, we decided not to do that. And now it's probably too late. The project has been has grown too big to change the license, but we're quite happy with it. So, Okay, so let us switch to the last topic for this interview. And what is your vision about FLOSS and its importance for the openness of science? Uh, I, I think it's very important. Um, I think the shift we've been seeing uh, towards open source software in science is, is very good and it's very helpful. So it, it enables scientists to leverage each other's work more easily, at least in an ideal uh, situation. So one important aspect there is that people need to realize there is still a cost to open source software. So even though it's it's free and libre, it doesn't mean it's entirely free as in beer. So it, the cost of the development always has to be backed by someone or by some institution. For EasyBuild, a large part of that is done by Ghent University because we develop it as part of our job. But if this this backing is not there in terms of funding, it, it can be a big issue. Yeah, and it also, it's not because the software is, is freely available to people. That doesn't imply that the, the scientific results are actually reproducible. So it's, it's a good start, but it's definitely not the full picture. Okay, it's not a it's not a sufficient condition uh, in no, the end. No, there's um, a lot more to it. Yeah. yeah. In regard to Floss, do you consider yourself to be an idealist or a pragmatist, and why? Uh, definitely a pragmatist. So sometimes I feel like like uh, Floss is is too much of a religion. Uh, so people are very can be very strict about it. But it's not like commercial software is, is totally useless. Uh, it has its benefits. For example, in, in our team, we rely on GPFS, which is very commercial, because we feel it's, it's worth the money we spend in terms of quality and support we get and so on. So it, if you have the money to spend on commercial software, you should definitely take it into account. But it has to have an, a big enough advantage over the open source alternatives to really consider it. So if there's no clear advantage, then you may be better off using the the open source alternatives because getting access to the source code can be very useful even for debugging or maybe even fixing problems in the software yourself. So being able to patch bugs yourself can be very useful. Do you think that using Floss can have a negative impact on science? Uh, That's a difficult question. Probably yes, because this again comes, at least partially comes back to the funding. So if there's a total lack of funding behind the open source software, then that's a, a pretty big risk. So if people start relying on this and then either the funding dies out because the PhD student finishes his PhD and doesn't care about the software anymore, or this it's not being picked up by a community, then this can be very risky. Uh, one of the recent examples that I saw there is the Open Blast library, which was being developed by a very active person who started his own company and ended up having not enough time anymore to do frequent releases of OpenBLAS. And there were no really, there was no new release for like a year and a half and people were really starting to worry about it. Even big companies uh, that were relying on OpenBLAS uh, started pushing for new releases and so on. And luckily that the situation changed and there's a new maintainer. But that was a good example, I think, of, of open source software that may have gone Uh, the wrong way, let's say. So if, if people, are, if the original developer or maintainer abandons it, and there's no big community around it that can pick up where he left, then yeah, that may be an issue. Okay. So where do you think the the money should come from to finance those projects that are, let's say, um, underfunded? Or do you do you think of any um, 
financing scheme for those? That's a very difficult question. Uh, there's, there's been big discussions on this, and this is a topic that comes up at, at FOSDEM, for example, almost every year uh, on, on good ways to deal with that. I would say that the, the big companies that rely on these specific open source projects should do a better job of contributing back funds, basically. So to, to help back the people that uh, develop the software. The, the OpenSSL is a very good example of, of this gone totally wrong. So there were only a handful of developers working on OpenSSL. But basically, anyone, everyone in the world was relying on it and relying on it quite hard. But there was no money coming from that. Um, the situation has improved a bit since then. But yeah, I, I guess that's a, a very important uh, way of getting funding. Yeah, or NTP. Network client protocol. There was a flaw recently, and they're like nobody was there to fix the, the problem because it was like managed by a single person that wasn't active anymore. So yeah, so if if that person disappears for whatever reason, then yeah, that's just an impossible situation. Yeah. Personally, what is your favorite text processing tool? Ah, uh, Vim, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, I I just I don't have enough fingers for Emacs. <laughs> You don't like control alt butterflies. Yeah, I, I started out with Emacs during my my masters, and after about a year or something, I discovered Vim, and I never looked back. Okay. Before we close the interview, is there anything else you would like to share with us? I, I would strongly re recommend people to come to FOSDEM sometime. So the the next edition will be first weekend of February 2019. So come to Brussels, and if you do, let me know. I'll I'll, I'll buy you a good Belgian beer. Okay. Thank you very much, Kenneth, for your time and this uh, wonderful interview. If any of our listeners want to reach you, how would you like them to contact you? I'm easy to reach via Twitter, so at KEHoste, via email, so kenneth.hoste at ugent.be, or via IRC or Slack in the EasyBuild channel. This will be all for today's episode of the Philosopher Science Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that interview. You can reach me on Twitter at DLPK. And you can reach me at underscore DBrass or both of us at Philosopher Science. Also, we are on iTunes and Google Play Music. You can help us by recommending the show to your friends and colleagues. Our website is located at philosopherscience.github.io where you can find more of our contact information and a link to our GitHub page where you can submit ideas for future episodes. We release an episode on the first Wednesday of every month. You can get our MP3 and OGG RSS feeds on our website. This was our last episode for 2018. We wish you the best for the end of the year and we will be back in January 2019. We hope you enjoyed the show and that we will see all of you in 2019. Bye. Bye.